Hey everyone, my name is Sarah Austin and this is the Meet Your Neighbor podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to explore the lives of everyday people and what it is they do for a profession. Along the way, we might discuss pop culture, music, sports, fashion, maybe even politics. But the goal is to really learn more about your neighbor and what it is they do for a living. Hopefully, while listening, you learn something new and maybe even get inspired to do something that you've always been passionate about. Thanks in advance for listening, and I hope you enjoy. All right, man. Well, I guess we'll get started. Um, welcome, everybody. This is another episode of the Meet Your Neighbor podcast. I am your host, uh, Sarah Austin. Today, I got a special guest, um, one of my former high school teammates, uh, former McDonald's All-American, uh, played a handful of seasons in the NBA, continues to play professionally overseas. Um, I like to introduce Again, one of my former teammates and friends, Jawad Williams. What's up, man? Thanks for having me. Thanks for thanks for being uh, a part of the podcast, man. I appreciate it. Um, let's talk a little bit. Let's let's jump right in and, and talk a little bit about um, you know your recruitment process. So you were you know one of the top high school players in Ohio. Um, you know, won a number of awards. Um, voted to the McDonald's All-American game as a senior. Um, can you talk a little bit about your, your process being recruited you know, as a Division I athlete? Um, it was, it was, at times, it, it was stressful. Uh, I kind of I started to narrow my teams down early. I had a set list. Before I even became a recruit, a highly recruited player, I had a set list. So I knew where I wanted to go. I knew what teams I would be willing to entertain and all that type of stuff. But, uh, you know, when there's so many people calling you and knocking on your door and all that type of stuff, you have to start narrowing it down. So I got real petty with my yeah. – my, it's like if you spelled my name wrong, I was taking you off the list. <laughs> if, the, if the letter wasn't handwritten, I was taking you off my list. You know, those type of things, they're small, but they're big things. I mean, it goes to show if you really care about me, you these things matter. Absolutely. So that's how I, you know, started to chop that list down. And when I came down to my final schools uh, – I think it's pretty well documented. I really wanted to go to Cincinnati. Oh, I don't think I ever knew that. Yeah, definitely wanted to go to Cincinnati. Uh, Bob Huggins is one of my favorite coaches. I would have played with Logan again, Steve right. Logan. Um, you know, I, that's definitely where I wanted to go. But at the time, they had a 0% graduation rate. Yeah. So my mother wasn't having it. So uh, then they you know, went down my list a little bit farther, and I committed to Maryland. Okay. And after I committed to Maryland, I had my official visit to Carolina. Uh-huh. And that was the game changer right there. And once I went on that official visit, I called Maryland when I got back. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> so just going back a little bit, was, um, was Logan a part of that, um, that recruitment process? Like, was he, was he reaching out to you saying, you know, this is where you need to go? No, he didn't. He didn't. Like, it, it really – it really didn't have much to do with him as far as like him trying to get me there and me wanting to play with him. It was just where I wanted to be. I yeah. mean, I, they, I felt like I fit their style. Yeah. You know, they were the tough, they were a tough team. They played hard, uh, athletes and shooters everywhere. I felt like I fit in perfectly. And that was, that was the main reason for that. Okay. And then with, um, you know, the recruitment process with uh, Maryland was, uh, was Gary Williams still the coach there? Yeah. Gary Williams was the head coach. Okay. And uh, that relationship kind of went sour because as the recruiting process went on, I realized I had a better relationship with the assistant coaches than I did with the head coach. Yeah. And, uh, at the end of the day, I'm going to be playing for the head coach, not the assistant coach. So, yeah. you know, that, that relationship kind of soured. And I was like, yeah, I'm out. <laughs> so I remember um, Gary I came to, you know, a handful of our practices, you know, uh, mm-hmm. my last year at Ed's anyway. Um, so I remember him being at some of those games. I remember Huggins being there. Um, so when you take your official visit to to UNC, um, Matt Doherty's the coach at that yeah, time. Yeah, Matt Doherty. Yeah. Okay. And you know how did you know how did he make you feel? I know you you mentioned before about you know connecting with assistant coaches at at other schools, but you know, how did how did he make you feel as a as a recruit? Uh, he he Doherty's a great recruiter. Uh, but let's backtrack a little bit farther. Coach Guthers actually started my recruitment to Carolina. Okay. And then Doherty was at Notre Dame. I had a good relationship with Matt Doherty and his, his, uh, his whole staff. 
So when he actually took the job at UNC, he called me. He was like, you think I can get you to come to this school? Because I told him I wasn't going to Notre Dame because it was just like going to St. Ed's all over again. Right, right. And, uh, so he, he was a great recruiter. He made me feel welcome when I came. Uh, you know, just the perks of going to a place like North Carolina, it was it's unmatched. Like yeah. my official visit, um, when they sent me the address, when they sent me my, my reservations for the, for the plane, they sent me the address. I was like, well, that's not Hopkins International Airport. I don't know where this airport is. It was Burke Lakefront Airport. You know, you from Cleveland, that's right there on the water. That's yeah. right down the street from my house. Right. So then I realized, oh, okay, this is different. They sent the private jet to come get me. Yeah. So that's the little airport where the, uh, where the air show used to be. Exactly. So they sent the private jet to come get me. That changed the game right there. You know, I'm in high school. I've never been on a private jet before. Not that they, they fly your um, your mom down with you or just you? No, nah, they, they could have flew with me, but this was just for me. Um, they, my mother and father, they wanted me to go experience, you know, the official visits by myself. You know, they left, they left the decision up to me. So they trusted me to go down there and make the right decision. Okay. Um, so you get back from that trip. You, you know, let Maryland know that you're not coming. And you're like, all right, Carolina is where I'm, where I'm going. Um, and obviously everybody knows about the, the rich tradition um, that Carolina has, you know, tons of, of players have, have gone to the league from there, you know, um, playing in that ACC, you know, against teams like Duke and Florida State and Virginia, like what was, what was that like? It was amazing, man. I mean, it was competitive every night, like every night, you never know who you was going to match up with. Like if you talk about Duke, at the time, they had Jay Will. Jay Williams was on that team. Mike Dunleavy, Carlos Boozer, Chris Duhon. You know, every team was had NBA players on there. So every night was was you had to be on your A game. In my first year, we got smacked around. So we learned a lot, though. Yeah. Um, now you know, coming from Edge, you know, we always had that that big rivalry uh, with Ignatius. Talk a little bit about you know, that Duke Carolina rivalry, like, you know, you play twice a year, at least twice a year, once at, you know, at the, the Dean Dome and once at, uh, at Duke's place. And then, you know, sometimes possibly in the, in the ACC tournament, what were those games like, like kind of describe the atmosphere or, you know, what it's like getting psyched up for those games um, and then actually stepping out on the floor. Man, that buildup for that game actually starts that week. Like I said, it's a week worth of buildup. So, Let's say we play Saturday, Monday, and everybody's talking about it on campus. The buses have beat Duke on them, you know, lit up. Uh, all the kids, you can just feel the excitement in the air. And then you get, as you get closer and closer, things start to get a little more weird. Yeah. I remember some Duke students, they had our class schedule somehow, and they would be waiting outside our class to taunt us and all that type of stuff. But it was never nothing. It was never nothing that went too far. You know what I mean? It was all in games. Fun. We didn't care. Right. Uh, you go to game day, and it's just nuts, man. Like, playing at Cameron was crazy because they had fans that lined the highway. So Duke and Carolina is only eight miles – I mean, nine miles apart. Yeah. It's one highway. The highway goes from our campus straight to their campus. Wow. So the whole way, you got Duke fans, they would ride a lot beside us and taunt the bus and, you know, just do whatever. And then we get off the bus, they stand in there waiting on us. They still taunt us. And they, they line the sidewalk that we walk on to get into the gym. Wow. We change, we go out on the court, and that's when it all goes really crazy right there. Now, are you, you know, are you wearing your headphones? Are you trying to like get zoned in um, before that game or as you're stepping off the bus? Or like, do you even pay any attention to the noise that's going on like to your left or right as you're walking into the, um, into Cameron Indoor? Uh, I had my headphones on. I mean, but they're right there in your face. It don't bother. It never bothered me, though. You know yeah. what I mean? Because playing in hostile environments never bothered me because I always felt like fans don't block shots. They don't play defense. They just making noise. Right. So it didn't. It never bothered me. But I kept my headphones on. I was that's that was my routine. I keep the same routine no matter who I'm going up against. Yeah. So fast forward a little bit. You know, you you got your first couple years at UNC. You guys have some some good teams, and then senior year. You make it to the uh, to the NCAA title game, and you go up a, against a strong um, Illinois team. You know, I remember watching that game. Uh, I had to go to a conference in uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, so I was like, 
um, I got to get back to my back to my room by game time because you know I couldn't miss that. Um, and I had actually been in uh, in Nashville that whole weekend. Um, you know, what's it like going into that uh, that championship game? Because yeah, that was like I said, it was a, a great uh, Illinois team with uh, with Darren Williams and D Brown. I want to say Luther Head was on yeah, that team too. Luther Head, yeah. But yeah, talk talk a little bit about that uh, that championship game in Oakland. So the night before, I couldn't sleep, couldn't sleep at all. But I knew I wasn't gonna be tired because my adrenaline would be pumping and everything. But going into that game, man, probably was it wasn't a sense of nervousness. It was more so, let's go ahead and win and get it over with. You know what I mean? Because we were we were a very confident, borderline cocky group. So we had already said amongst each other we were going to win. But I think what really helped us, Sean May's birthday was on the championship game day. Really? The night before the championship game, we had a birthday party for Sean in the hotel. <laughs> so, like, you know, everybody else you would think lights out at 9 o'clock and all of this. Stuff. No, we had everybody invited their family. Coach invited all our families. We had the whole floor to ourselves in the hotel, and we threw a birthday party. You know, music playing, eating cake and ice cream, you know, like nothing you would do before a championship game. Right. So then by the time we got done with that, I thought, oh, yeah, we won. Like, that, that's what got us to that point, being loose and enjoying the moment. You know, this is one of our teammates' birthday. You know, yeah. we can't let that pass because we got something to do. Let's enjoy the moment, and then we'll handle business when it's time to. Right. And, uh, and by this time, uh, Roy Williams is the coach, right? Cause, yeah. yeah. So you guys win that championship. Um, and then, you know, you got a – I mean, that was a stacked – Squad. Um, Felton was the point guard, right? You had yeah. McCants, Sean May, um, Marvin Williams. Uh, I, and then you, I mean, I was a starting five. All five of y'all ended up playing in the NBA. Like, what was it, you know, what was it like playing um, with those guys? Man, we had, like you said, we had a squad, man. But the biggest thing was we had a great group of guys. Yeah. Um, we're all still close to this day. Like, those, those it's like for real family. Like we're all still like that. But um from was that Noel? team, we had we had was, hmm? was Noel on that team? Yeah, yeah. David Noel, Ray Sean Terry. We had nine pros on our team. Wow. We had nine pros on our team, put our egos aside. But uh what made us different was uh going into that year, we kinda we said we're gonna win and then everybody has to leave. It was my last year anyway. Right. Jackie Manuel, Melvin Scott's last year, so you know, we all got together. It's like, look, if we leave, everybody, we out the door at the same time. No man gets left behind. You know, a couple guys decided to stay. But, you know, other than that, that's what kind of set the tone for us. That's what made us such a close-knit group. We were close enough to make a commitment to each other to win and uh, put our egos aside. Yeah. Um, so, I've you know, obviously, everyone knows that, you know, MJ went to, went to Carolina and a couple of weeks ago, you posted a, a picture of you and MJ um, with the with the twenty dollar bill. Can you? Uh, I know we talked, you know, before about this, but can you can you tell that story about you know why the twenty dollar bill is in that frame along with the, the picture of you and MJ? All right, so we're in the gym uh, working out and everything, and MJ walks in out of the blue like this is unexpected. He just walks into the gym, you know, with his crew, his security, and everything. And he starts talking to everybody and gets us all together. He's talking, like, just giving us a regular talk. Like, you know, saying what's up, blah, blah, blah. Y'all need anything, reach out type thing. And he get ready to walk off the court. And he reaches in his pocket. He's like, oh, damn, I got cash on me. I got, I got, that's all I got. I got $40. He's like, who want to shoot? Let's bet. So I was like, all right. Everybody jumped in line. Like, all right, bet. He's like, what's, like, what's the bet? He's like, half court shots. First person to make it. So I'm first up. I shoot it. I make it. He pissed. Shot. Yeah, very first shot. Make it on that. He pissed. So he MJ take the money out of his pocket and throw it on the floor and walk <laughs> off. So like uh, as he's leaving, one of the cameramen that was in the gym was like, "Hey Mike, uh, since before I beat you, take a picture with him." So as I'm walking towards him, he like, "Damn, you gonna take my money and you want a picture?" He's like, "You want everything, don't you?" So. I mean, he was joking. We took the picture, you know, wish me well, and then he went on about his business. But that was like, that wasn't the first, that was like the second or third time I had met MJ. So I, I knew what type of person he was. I knew his personality. But, um, yeah, man, that's one of my favorite stories to tell people, man. Like, I got a chance to be the GOAT in a bet. 
Yeah, that that's uh that's a story I would you know I would tell my kids, my grandkids, anybody within within earshot, um, you know, because I'm sure you're like me, you know, somebody I grew up idolizing the way he played. I I can't think of one person that didn't want to be like Mike, you know, when it yeah. came to you know playing on the court. Um, it seems like the Carolina guys have a really close knit relationship with each other. You know, I've read tons of articles and you know just hear people saying uh um you know saying that they you know come back in the summers for like those summer runs and, and things like that and i know you said you you mentioned that that you guys are all really close to the ones that you played with um can you talk a little bit about those like those summer runs or just you know how how connected you guys stay with each other uh so outside of basketball just my team alone we have about 35 plus kids <laughs> so out of like 15 guys we got like 35 kids Wow. Um, so all our kids pretty much grow up together, man. Like legit. Like Sean May has four girls. I got four kids. Sean lives right around the cor corner from me. Oh wow. David Wells had he has three boys. He's about fifteen minutes from us. So a lot of guys, besides the it's a very very few guys that don't actually live in the area anymore. And most guys we come down here and we just make this home and never leave. Um but like we talk about them summer runs, man. Summer runs get competitive. Man. Like you know, we put friendships on the line because you know some of those runs have to turn into fights before. But that's normal. I mean, we competing. You got some of the best players in, in the world going against each other. Like, and then you got guys who drop in who didn't go to Carolina. Like you know, there's been Blake Griffin, Alonzo Mourning when he was playing. Uh, you got some of the Duke guys who come through and play. You know, there's guys from literally all over. And they just like, hey, y'all playing today? All right, I'm coming through. Wow. And every year, a new batch of up-and-coming talent. Then us old guys, we got to go break them guys in, let them know where they stand. You know what I mean? So that's that's normal. That's normal. And it's every summer. It never stops, man. It never stops. Wow. Um, so you, you mentioned fights. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that uh, in just a second. Um, so you watched uh, i'm sure you watched the the last dance uh documentary like like most people were glued to the tv every sunday night um what were your thoughts on it? like what did you what did you think about those teams did, did it change your perspective on mj at all or was no it i mean everything i seen was what i thought i yeah. mean i, I love the last dance for what it was i think it was more so of an introduction to the new generation um, because if you're a real Bulls fan, none of this stuff he, you've seen or heard was anything new. Right. Like, there was nothing I didn't know already. But it was just, it did give me a moment to, like, look back and be like, damn, I remember when that happened or I remember this. Like, you know, but I loved it, you know, for what it was. Uh, you know, not very often do you get to see MJ talk or hear MJ talk. But uh, so that's, that's the part I love most about it. Yeah. I, uh, I watched it with my, my oldest son, Little Sarah. And, uh, you know, I said I wasn't going to pause it. I said I was just watching it straight through. But he had a couple questions here and there. And then there were other times I was like, yo, I remember watching this game. or I remember seeing, you know, this highlight. Like, even with the very last game, game six of the finals, you know, that's a couple months after we won our state championship. And um, I was working. It was before my, my first summer before college. I was working at the finish line in Euclid, uh, Euclid Square Mall. So I had to work that day. And I remember like racing home as soon as my shift was over so I could get home and, and watch that game. But, you know, and I probably watched game six easily, you know, 15, 20 times, probably more than 20 times over the last 20 plus years. Like I've, I watched that game like it's a movie. So when I'm Sunday night uh, or no, uh, whatever night it was, they showed like the last um, the last game on, on ESPN. I'm telling Lil Sarah like, oh, he's about to score right here. Oh, you know, watch this, watch this uh, hook shot that Pip is about to hit. Like I could was, you know, breaking it down that way. Um, so it was really cool to to relive all those moments with with him. Um, and yeah, I did, the same. I did the exact same thing, dog. I was pausing it, telling my wife, like, look, I remember when this happened. I was laying across the bed. You know, that's when we lived on Eddie Road. I remember all that stuff, man. Like that's what that was so cool about it. And then, like you said, man, like Game Six. It's still on my iPad to this day. I yeah. still have that. I never, every device I get, I put game six on there. So I will watch it before some of my games. I will watch it just because 
sometimes like you know how you can't sleep and you need something in the background playing. Right. I would turn on Game Six. <laughs> like it's always on my devices. Yeah, I'm I'm the same same exact way. So you uh you mentioned um you know some of those summer runs turning into fights sometimes you know because everybody is so competitive. Um, you know, did you? I, and I've I've all I've I've heard the story about Jordan punching Kerr or you know Jordan, um, you know getting fights with you know with other teammates before. Um, did that? Um, did you feel like oh man he shouldn't have done that or that wouldn't fly in today's NBA or were you like that's just part of the game? That's part of the game, man. When you're competing and you're trying to get other people to raise their level, it happens. You know I've seen I've seen worse. You know what I mean I've seen it go off the court and, and spill into the locker rooms and all that other stuff yeah but this, that's normal I mean it didn't make me feel any type of way I fought my teammates before and we turned around and win I mean right. you know my guy took Carolina we fought we fought a lot yeah. <laughs> and that, you know it was all for the better of the team it was never like you just fought somebody because you didn't like them you know we competing it could turn into a fight or we got a difference of opinion it could turn into a fight but you know, other than that, we're still family. We're gonna move on. You know what I mean? You learn from it. You grow from that type of stuff. In my opinion. No, I'm I'm right there with you. I think um, unless you are somebody that hasn't competed that way before, you know, you might look at it differently. But you know, growing up playing competitively and and being on teams where you know, you know, you and you know, Logan and Clancy and like all these guys that I played with that you know went to the NBA or got drafted by NBA teams, like that really wasn't a thing that I wasn't, that wasn't anything for me. I was like, Oh, you know, that, that happens. Um, yeah. I think some people just might not be used to that. So they don't, they don't view it the same way, but I personally didn't think um, anything was wrong with it. And I, I loved, you know, Steve Kerr's response. He was like, you know, I felt like I had to stand up for myself, which you do, you know? And, um, and, you know, I think he, he earned, you know, he, I think he even said it himself. He earned MJ's respect after that. Like, you know, this is somebody that um, that's going to, be right there in the trenches with me fighting when, when the game is on the line. Yeah, of course, that's what you want. You want to know somebody's going to stand up to you. You know what I mean? Because if they stand up to you, they most likely they're going to stand up to somebody else. Right. I mean, I played for Coach Flannery. Coach Flannery would tell you, he know, I yeah. had a lot of fights with my teammates after y'all left. Because, you know, I'm coming in after playing with y'all. Like, now I feel like I'm the top dog. You know yeah. what I mean? There were a couple of people who wanted to challenge that position. And basketball got it turned physical. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know my background more than most. So first thing I do, I let my hands go and right. we figure it out after that. So <laughs> right. but it was all part of the game, man. But you know, I still got great relationships with those dudes. But you yeah. know, we gotta fight, we gotta fight. Yeah. So switching gears just a little bit, um, you finish up at Carolina. Um and then you start playing professionally overseas. Um, you know, talk a little bit about you know that transition from you know, being one of the top players in the country to um, you know not playing in the NBA right away, but going overseas first. Talk talk a little bit about that that transition. Um, so it started draft night. So leading up to the draft, I'm hearing late first, early second round pick. All right, cool. You know, that's still guaranteed. And I remember we get to like pick 31. So I was like, all right, I'm either going to go. First of all, I thought I was, gonna, I was possibly going to go 18 to Memphis. Yeah. And Hakeem Warwick, who went to Syracuse, he slipped in the draft. Get a call from Jerry West. Hakeem slipped. We got to take him. All right, cool, whatever. We're totally different players, but all right, cool. So we get to like pick 31. 32 rolls around. 33 rolls around. 34. And I, I started dozing off. My mother was like, Wake up. Your name going to get called pretty soon. I was like, something not right. Yeah. It just didn't feel right. So then we get to the towards the end of the draft. And, you know, they start talking about guys who didn't get drafted, that were expecting to get drafted and all that. And my name comes on the board. I'm like, whatever. So, like, I had a small get-together. It was just my family, close family. And, uh, you know, some people, some of my family was devastated. You know what I mean? But I, I didn't, it didn't bother me. I didn't, I didn't drop not one tear. Um, I mean, my nephew, he was crying, and I was telling him, like, don't cry. Just remember, when you get to this situation, you don't put yourself in this situation. You just make sure you do everything you can where when it's time for this draft night, you'll be the number one pick, right. and you don't have to worry about anything else. So right then, I made that conscious decision, like, 
I'll get there. I'll just take a different path, and that's fine with me. Um, so I signed my first deal. Uh, I go to Summer League with the Golden State Warriors, um, but then I end up signing to go to training camp with the Spurs. Okay. I have a good training camp with the Spurs. I got to learn play with Tim Duncan, Manu, and Tony Parker for a little while. Spurs decide they want to send me to Spain. Spain is like one of the toughest leagues in Europe. I'm the first American rookie to play in Spain, and this is my first time being out of the country. So it was tough, man. They tried to treat me like a rookie, and I wasn't having it. You know, I put up a fight yeah. every time, like with, my, with the staff, with it, whoever. Whoever thought that they were going to treat me like the way they treat some of the younger European guys. I wasn't going for it. Right. So that, that situation, it kind of set me up, but it made me grow. Like, imagine being – this was before social media and – Skype and everything. This is 2005. We don't. I don't have all this, these luxuries. You know what I mean? So my phone bill was 2,500 a month. Wow. So I'm like, I got to do what I got to do to survive. And if I stay on the phone all night, that's what I'm gonna do. I was getting lost in the city. I no translator, no nothing. I just had to figure it out. And I was over there for like three months like that. Like there were. No, I'm telling you, I cried myself to sleep some nights. Like, I'm in a foreign country, can't talk to nobody. Wow. I'm just in this apartment. Teammates? Hmm? No American teammates? I had two American teammates. One didn't deal with us at all. Like, you always, you always got that one teammate who just does his own thing, and he wants to fit in with the locals, so he doesn't deal with you at all. Okay. He didn't deal with us at all. And the other guy, he was married with kids, so he couldn't hang out with me. You know what I mean? Oh, but I figured it out, man. It, it made me grow. It made me grow a lot. Wow. So you spend some time there. How many, now how many seasons are you, are you in Europe before you come back, uh, before you, you know, start playing for the Cavs? I see. I did Spain. This, this is the whole breakdown. So San Antonio, Spain, uh, Clippers, G, the, well, now the G League. The so G League. Japan, and then Cleveland. Okay. And the credit, let me tell you the story about Japan and Cleveland. So once I go to, the reason I ended up going to Japan, I kind of just shut off the NBA. I was like, you know what? I'm done with it. I'm tired of being the last guy cut. Like I literally, like when I was with the Clippers, I thought I was good. They laid my jersey out for media day and everything. Cut time is three o'clock. I got cut at 2.30. No. All right. Who who's who do you remember who all is on the roster at that at that point? Uh Corey Maggetti, Kelvin okay. Brand, Catino Mobley, Sam Cassell. Okay. Yeah, that was that year. Okay. Yeah. Sean Levinson. Sean Levinson now. That before or after he got hurt? This is before he got hurt. Okay. So when they cut me, they like, you know, we're gonna call you back up, just a matter of time. Yeah. I remember watching when Sean blew out his knee, because I was still in, I was in Anaheim, California. I was there and playing for their affiliate team. Okay. I was having an amazing year. So I'm like, I know they're going to call me back up. They told me they would, but you can never take that. You know, you can take that with a grain of salt when you, some, until it's on paper. Right. But um, I remember seeing when Sean blew his knee out, and I was like, damn, they're going to go get a point guard now. And that's what happened. Mm. They sent Elton Brand out. We had a game at the Staples Center, and they sent Elton Brand to come talk to me. And Elvin was like, yo, we were getting ready to call you up. We ended up having to take a point guard. And then after that, I was just like, yeah, I'm done with the NBA. I'm going to Japan. So you're in Japan. And then how does the, you know, where does the call come from? Who, who calls you to say, hey, you know, we want you to sign with, with Cleveland? So I, after Japan, I come back home and um, I was actually in Cleveland. Hanging, I was just hanging out. I was in the hood. I was down on St. Clair. I think I had just left the rec center. I was shooting back and forth up and down St. Clair. My agent keeps calling me. So I'm like, yo, if you ain't got nothing to talk about, like, don't, you're bothering me now. You know what I'm saying? Because now it's my off season. He's like, hey, the Cavs want you to come work out. I was like, no. And he was like, the Cavs want you to come work out. Like, he repeating it like I ain't here. I was like, no, I'm not going. So he, I was like, so then he called me the third time. All right, man, I'm going. So I go down to the gym the next day. Have a great workout, but then I realized none of the decision makers are in the gym. It's like some assistant coaches and you know, some I don't even know who the other guys were, like video guys. No decision makers though. So I called my agent and cut some out, like, yo, you're wasting my time. Like, 
if they view me like this, where they won't have a decision maker in the gym, there's no point for me to be there. Right. So I leave, they call, he calls me again the next day. Now I'm literally chilling. I'm down, I'm in the hood. I'm on Eddie Road, like chilling. Yeah. He called me again, like, hey, they want you to come back. I'm like, man, I'm not doing it. I'm like, I'm done. Like, no, they, they had their chance. I'm cool. He keeps calling. I call my grandmother. And I'm like, grandma, the cats want me to come work out. What you, what you think? And, you know, at the time she was alive, she was like, well, baby, I want you to come home. All right, cool. So I call back. I'm like, look, tell them I'm on my way. So I go to minicamp, kill minicamp, go to summer league, kill summer league, and turn it into a three-year deal. Wow. So what's, what's that like? You know, I, I think most players would want to end up playing for their home, hometown team. You know, talk a little bit about what that's like to be a professional athlete, playing for your hometown team. You know, do you have everybody calling you for tickets? Do you find that there's more distractions playing in front of your, your hometown team? Um, you know, talk, talk a little bit about that. It was great for me, man. I loved it. You know, my family and friends got to see me play. We haven't seen me play in person in a long time. I loved it. Uh, as far as distractions go, there weren't many distractions because you know, most people who know me, they, they know me. So they're not pulling at me. They know I don't, you know, I, I'm not afraid to say no, I'm that guy. Like, I have no problem saying no, I have no hangups. But um, I always told people, me making it to the cast was always bigger than me. It was about me setting the, the, the groundwork for a kid who would come after me. So a lot of days after practice, I would go down to Glenville Rec Center and yeah. work again for like an hour or two. And it wasn't like I was going down there showing off. I was going down there to show these kids, like, look, I grew up right around the corner. I'm coming back for a reason. You know, and a lot of those young guys end up playing professional football. Not, none of them play professionally in the NBA basketball. But, you know, a lot of those guys, they remember that. You know, you got the Frank Clarks and uh, Chris Worley. Yeah. Uh, Marshawn Lattimore. These are all guys who kind of came up after me. But they seen me coming to Glenville Rec every day. Yeah, you know, after practice, so, so many, so many great athletes came out of Glenville. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. It was my home school. That's where I was supposed to go to school. Yeah. I wanted to decided to go to Ed. I was right in between. Like Shaw was a little bit closer to my house because you know I lived in EC. Mm -hmm. um, but you know Glenville would have been the next closest school had I not gone across town to to Ed. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's super important, you know, for for kids to be able to look and like, yo, that guy grew up where I grew up. You know, he's from where I'm from, and he made it. That means I can do it too if I put in that that work. Yeah, that was the biggest thing for me, man. Then like we talked, we asked about tickets too. So the Cavs were great about that. So uh, the media, the media relations lady, um, she used to give me like they always had tickets that were like kind of in the nosebleeds. And it was, she would give me like a stack of 50 tickets. And um, she used to give them to me like the day before or on game day. And I would just ride through the hood like, hey, you ever been to a Cavs game? Oh, I was like, here, here go four, how many tickets you need? And you know, some people think, joking. I'm like, here, here go four tickets. And I would just ride through the hood, handing them out. Seeing somebody standing on the corner, hey, you want Cavs ticket? Give them to them. And then outside of that, my family was taken care of, you know, yeah. by my ticket, but everybody else. I made sure I had the whole hood in the building. If you was from my neighborhood, you probably made it to a cab game off some tickets that I gave you. I'm sure you made so many people's day, um, you know, by by doing that. That's uh, I've never I never heard that story, but I mean, that's cool that that's not something that you necessarily promote and put out there like that. But it's also nice to know that you know that's something that that you you did for people, you know, that that grew up where you where you're from. And um, hey I was just trying to spread love. I mean. Yeah. What other thing? Well, I felt like I was there for a reason, and it was bigger than just basketball. I mean, basketball was a big thing, but like, like I said, touching and people understanding, like we come from the same circumstances, and letting them know that you can still be successful was my whole thing. Right. So that uh, that 0809 season with the Cavs, I think, I think we had the best record in the league that year. Um, I remember Nike 
putting out a bunch of commercials. It had the the Kobe puppet and the LeBron puppet, and you know it was it was expected that it was going to be L.A. and Cleveland in the finals. Um, talk a little bit about you know, that experience running through that that whole playoff run, and then you know matching up against that Orlando team, and then ultimately losing in the Eastern Conference Finals. Man, I think that's one of my <clears throat> that's. If anything, that, that bothered me because we, for some reason, coaches feel like when you get to the playoffs, you need to shrink your bench. Yeah. And in my opinion, that's the wrong thing to do because you're playing more, you're playing a lot of games in a limited amount of time. Right. And it's a lot more stressful. Mm-hmm. So, team, and for whatever reason, um, going into that series, Mike Brown decided he wanted to shrink his bench. And we built a team to beat Boston. Right. No, no, that was the first. No, okay. So we end up running to Orlando, and I'm inactive during the series. And once you're inactive, you can't be activated um, until the next series or something like that. So I'm inactive, and that would have been the perfect matchup. Listen, it would have been. You would have been able to. I would have been able to guard Rashard Lewis or Hito Turkoglu. Exactly. And instead, for the matchup problems were they. Especially when they when they ran all those pick and rolls or those pick and pops, I mean, you just had Turkaloo and and Lewis just draining threes or, or long jumpers, and we didn't have anybody. I mean, exactly. I mean, you got two six ten guys on the wing, and I'm six nine, and I'm sitting on the bench in a suit, and then, you know he, they were shooting over the top of our guards, right? But it was nothing like to be Love my Williams, love Delonte West, but I mean, it was just a matchup nightmare for us. Yeah. I mean, Brian, I remember Brian getting mad and yelling at me in practice, like, yo, what the hell are you doing? Why you ain't playing? I was like, yo, this yo, he made this decision. I didn't choose to sit down. Right. Then him, he, he got mad because he didn't understand why I was in the suit. You know what I mean? Right. But there was nothing that could be done. Once the series, once the series roster is set, it's set. So I, I couldn't become an become yeah. actor. I never knew that. I never knew that. That hurt right there. And then we, yeah, that was tough right there. Yeah. So we're going to take a, a quick pause. Tell me a little bit about LeBron as a teammate. What, what, what was he like? Man, I loved him as a teammate, man. I loved him as a teammate. Uh, it's, it's, he's complete opposite probably of what we've seen on, from Jordan in the, in the last dance. Yeah. Uh, kind of, if you don't know Brian personally, you could tell who he is and what he's about by the people he keeps around him. Right. He has the exact same friends um, from high school. He doesn't like to be alone. And he's, in my opinion, he doesn't like to be alone. So he created a family atmosphere in Cleveland where everybody got along. We all hung out together. We went to dinner every road trip together. You know, everything was about being together and being a family with him. And as a teammate, I mean, I don't have anything to say about him. You know, when I was trying to make the team and all that type of stuff, he was the guy who, uh, he kind of looked out for me. Like, he knew what I was capable of from high school. We right. knew each other from way back. So, coming into every game, when I was sub in, he used to be like, hey, you ready? All right, we're going to run and get two down, which was an ISO play for me. And, you know, we ran that every single time I subbed in. It was, it was like, if I score, they keep coming to me. If I miss, then we got to go somewhere else. But, you know, he made a conscious effort to make sure I had a chance. And, and I just seized the moment when it came. Yeah. So I and you know, he took care of us off the court as well. You know, he made sure people ate. So can't be bad at that. Right. Yeah, he um, you know, I only met him once, uh, back in the day when uh when I was a manager at, at the finish line out at, at Randall Park. He came in there with a bunch of uh his teammates, um, high school teammates. And this is probably like maybe a couple months before he got drafted. Um maybe one or two months before he got drafted. And he just seemed like the most down to earth person ever. You know, we're talking about somebody that's been on ESPN and the cover of Sports Illustrated and, you know, everybody's following since, you know, the beginning of his high school career. But he just seemed like, he seemed like if it were me and you in high school, like going to look at sneakers on the wall, like that's, that's how normal he was. And he's, he's always seemed that way. Um, you know, I don't really get into the, to the LeBron and, and MJ debate about who's the, the you know the goat but um just in terms of a person he seems like he's just a, a really really good dude yeah he is man like he 
it's hard to explain because I knew him before the stardom started. Right. Um, but I don't feel like he switched it up at all. That's good. I don't, I don't feel like he switched it up at all. I can get him on the phone if I needed to. I can call and, you know, just say what's up if I, if I want to. And uh, that's, that's all you can ask for for a guy in his position. You know what I mean? You don't want much from him. You don't need nothing from him. You don't want nothing from him, but he never switched it up. That's that's good, man. I like to I like to hear stories like that. So, twenty the, the twenty ten season rolls around. You know, you guys coming off that um, that that heartbreaking loss in the Eastern Conference Finals, and then uh, then the second round. I think we had the best record in the league again that year. Yeah. Beat up with Boston in the second round. You know, talk a little bit about that uh, experience. And you're playing a lot more too that second year. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk a little bit about that experience going into the to the Eastern Conference semis and going up against that uh, that Boston team with you know Paul Pierce and KG and you know. that was difficult for us because we built a team that was prepared to beat Orlando. So we built that's why we went out and got Shaq, but we needed somebody to neutralize Dwight Howard. Right. Z, we got bigger. We got we got Z, we got Shaq, we got. Uh, Andy, yeah, Andy Verjov. So we got a team built to beat Orlando, and we ended up meeting Boston, and that created a whole nother matchup problem. Right. So it, it was tough, man, but nobody thought that series was going to go the way it did. Um, I thought we were going to win. I was looking forward to the, to the Lakers matchup, you know what I mean? Right. I was looking forward to that, and it, it just didn't happen. And we, I needed that. I wanted that bad. Quick. Give me a, a quick Shaq story. What, what was he like as a, a teammate? He was a clown, man. Yeah. He was a clown. He was the biggest clown in the locker room. His locker was right next to mine. Shaq a big dude, man. Like, if you've never seen him in person, he, he dwarfed. I'm 6'9", 225. He's like 7'3", 350. Like, he dwarfs me. Like, he's, he's next to me. But, like... Shaq, I can't even tell you too many stories about Shaq because they're inappropriate. You know what I'm saying? That's the type of dude he was, man. He just, he wild, man. He a wild boy. But he was a great dude, man. Like, as a teammate, he's the type of guy you want in the locker room. Yeah, he, he seems like He seems like he would just be a lot of fun to be around, a, a prankster, a jokester. Exactly. Um, I, I don't know if it was on um, – so I listened to the, to the Dan Patrick show uh, pretty much every day. I don't know if it was on there or if they talked about it on the uh, the TNT, um, the NBA on TNT show. They said something about, I don't know if this was, I don't know where it was. Maybe it was Phoenix. But he, him like running through the locker room like naked and, and grabbing people. He, That's why I told you. That's why I told you it was inappropriate. He did that. He did that in Cleveland too. That's crazy. He never did that to me, but he did it to <laughs> he did it to one of our teammates, man. It, it, it's dude disgusting, man. And dude couldn't do nothing. The dude he grabbed couldn't do nothing. Like, it's Shaq. Like, you, he too big. Right. We grabbed dude, was hugging him, and dude was trying to get loose and couldn't. And Shaq. But we just eye <laughs> laughing, man. Like, dude was mad inappropriate. <laughs> That's crazy. So, you guys, uh, you, play, you play against Boston. Uh, one of my all-time favorite players is KG. You know what? What is he saying out on the on the court? Is he talking as much as he as we see him? You know, talking on 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 TV. Yeah, most of the time he's talking to himself. Though that's what people don't understand. He's not barking at anybody. He's talking to himself. Like, come on, he's punching himself and banging on stuff. He's talking to himself. But he, man, he very rarely said anything directly to a player on our team. Mm. He's always talking to himself. Wow. So unfortunately, we we take the L. We lose to uh, to Boston in the second round. Do you or anybody else on the team have an inkling that Bron is leaving um, at the end of that season? No, not really. Um, I don't think anybody thought he would really leave home. You know what I mean? Uh, I was real close to. Uh, I'm still uh, real close to Randy Mims, his manager. Yeah. So Randy and I would hang out all the time. You know, we talked about Brian possibly could leave. He didn't know either. Like, legit, nobody knew. Yeah. And, you know, I remember when the decision rolled around, I remember where we were at. You know, throughout the, but throughout that summer, I got people calling me, trying to reach Brian. 
I got people from the front office calling me trying to reach Brian because they know I would hang with him a lot. Right. So they would try to use me to get to him. And I'm like, look, call him. Like, don't call me. Right. Like, we'll call me, hey, yeah, we're family. It's a family atmosphere. What is your boy? What's, what's Brian thinking? I'm like, man, call him. You know what I mean? Like, this is the front office. This is like the assistant general manager. Wow. Calling my phone. Like, dude, I'm not worried about where he's going. Like, that, that doesn't bother me. Like, I'm trying to secure my contract. <laughs> like, so, yeah, man, but I'll give you a decision about the, about the decision. I'm with Randy and we have some other friends. We, like, we go out to Vegas. And this is the decision that's happening maybe two days into our trip. We were all in the pool. And I'm like, Randy, why you ain't in, uh, I think he did in Connecticut. Right. She made the, I'm like, Randy, why you ain't there? He was like, I don't know what he's getting ready to do. I don't want no parts of it. That's his exact words. So I was like, oh, he might be leaving. But he was like, he didn't know. So the decision to get ready to come on, we all in the pool. We split up. Everybody, we're going to get showers and get ready for the dinner tonight. And we go to the rooms, and I remember watching it. He said, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. I was like, ooh. I mean, when I tell you my mouth dropped, I was like, man, I, just, I didn't know where Miami came from. First of all, like I had, I thought he was going to either go to Dallas, uh, to the Knicks, yeah, but I never thought Miami. That kind of came out of nowhere. Like it was even talk about Orlando. You know what I mean? And that came out of nowhere, man. But I remember we met back up, and everybody was just like, oh, "There it is." I I I remember, and I can't even believe it's been ten years. It'll be ten years this summer. But I I never forget where I was. I was in Columbus. I was at my dad's house, and uh, and. My son, Lil Sarek, was, was about a year and a half. Yeah, he was about a year and a half old at that time. And I remember you know, watching it and Jim Gray is asking all these questions. I'm just like, man, get to it already. Just, just tell us where you're going. Or, you know, ask the question. So I went upstairs, put Lil Sarek to bed. I paused the TV because you know, it's on DVR. So I paused it and I came, down, came back downstairs and he still had a couple minutes to go. And my phone is just blowing up. And a friend of mine texted me. He was like, you know, what do you think about him leaving? I was like, he's not leaving. What do you? Like not not remembering that I paused the TV, so I'm you know minutes behind. And he was like, "Yeah, he is." I was like, "You don't know what you're talking about." You know, he's not leaving. And he was like, "Oh, you don't know yet." And then I just like I just tossed my phone aside. And then when he said it, I was just I was in shock. Um, I just I didn't didn't think it would happen. And you know, I didn't take it personally, but I was like, "Man, you know, we got somebody that grew up in our backyard, you know, doing so well with our, with my hometown team." Like I. Thought, I just knew for sure that we would win a championship as long as he stayed there. So I was, I was a little hurt by the, by the decision. Um, you know, I, again, I didn't take it personally, but I was like, wow, I just, just never saw that coming at all. Man, it was crazy, man, because people tried to play. Like, they knew we were close, but they tried to play me against them sometimes. Like, they would come to me talking bad about them. I'm like, I ain't got nothing bad to say about them. And then yeah. I'm like, that's my guy. And then they would switch the story. Like, oh, I'm just saying, you know how that goes. Right. I'm just saying though, uh, yeah, but you're saying it to the wrong person. Like, I'm not. This is you don't like people don't understand the business of NBA or professional sports. Period. There's no loyalty in professional sports at all. Yeah, people. we've seen it. Play, yeah, yeah. And the people don't understand it. Like the times I told you I got cut, I didn't get a heads up. They don't care about your livelihood after that. It's like, all right, on to the next one. You know what I mean? So when a player, when players finally started to stand up and say, "Hey, I don't want to play here. I'm going there, or I want this trade," and you know that's great. You know that's setting it up for the next generation that's going to come and give the, the players more power. Yeah. You know, you look at the NFL. That's why they lack the power that they should have. Right. Player run league, but if you keep if you keep bending over, you know, bad things are going to happen. You know what I'm saying? That's why they, they don't have any they don't have any leverage. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think, in, you know, and not to get into the too deep into the, the politics of, of NFL, uh, but, you know, like in their last collecting, collective bargaining agreement, they should have fought for more power um, so that they can, you know, they can take back the control um, when it comes to their contracts and guaranteed contracts and things like that. Like what you see in the NBA, if, you know, I think things would go a lot differently in the NFL if they had uh, more of that. And I think, like I said, I think that's something they should have fought for in their, their last um, CBA. Yeah. See, I don't really know much about their collective bargaining agreement, but I know when the NBA rolled around and said, hey, we're going to do a lockout, and the players said, all right, go ahead. 
know what I mean? It wasn't, it was no pressure. Like lock us out if you want to. Like we all losing, so go for it. Right. Like you said, I don't I don't know much about the NFL, but I do know they play a more physical, more violent game than basketball players, and they're not compensated for that. Right. It's my opinion. Right. No, you're right. You're right. So, um, Bron leaves, you know, and, and then uh, comes back a few years later, you know, wins the championship for the, for the hometown team. That was one of my most proudest moments as a, as a Clevelander, you know, seeing, you know, what he was able to do. Um, and I couldn't even, when he left the second time, I wasn't, you know, I didn't even feel the way that I felt the first time around. I was like, hey, he did what he said he was going to do. Um, you know, I would love to see him stay in Cleveland, but, you know, he wants to go to L.A. and take his family out there. You know, wish him, I wish him well. I still want to, I still hope that he can win one more uh, championship before it's all, all said and done for his career. But circling back to you, so, um, you know, after your time with the Cavs, you go back overseas and um, mm-hmm. you're in Japan now, right? Yeah. Playing in, professionally in Japan. Uh were you were you there? Was your season going when you know coronavirus um, yeah. kind of took over everything? And yeah, so-, so we had a we had a short break in our uh, my schedule, so I was like, I'm gonna fly home for my birthday. So I flew in on the 18th, was home for the 19th, flew back out to Japan on the 23rd. And when I land, <clears throat> like you know, we go in for practice the next day, everything cool. And after practice, like uh, there's a virus going around. So we need to make sure everybody's safe. Like I said, I had just got off the plane. So, I mean, if anything, I had to be careful. I wasn't sure. You know, you're traveling, you're jet lagged, you're tired, your body, your immune system ain't the same. So they tell us this is virus going around. So my team told, tell us, like, everybody stay in. You got to report your temperature every morning and every night. And uh, we're going to continue to practice. But we don't know what's going to happen with the league. So then we find out eventually that our league gets postponed for two weeks. So we're just practicing for two weeks, doing nothing, giving three days off, all this stuff. And then we practice, and we, so we finally get to games. They're like, all right, we're going to start the games back with no fans. First game was fine. Second game, one of the referees reported that he had a temperature. Okay. So word got back to the league. The other team decided that they were going to forfeit the game. They didn't even come out of the locker room. They were like, it's not safe. We're not coming out there. My team was already warming up, so we just stayed out there. And um, so they ended up shutting us, shutting our league down again for another two weeks. And then at the end of that two weeks, they were like, yeah, season canceled. Wow. It's not worth it. Put too much at risk and shut it down. Now, was your family in uh, in Japan with you, or were you there by yourself? Going on? I was by myself. I was by myself at this time. They, cause the twins, hadn't, they haven't traveled yet. We didn't feel like they were ready to get on that plane, because that's a – like a 14, 15 hour trip. And so this time, luckily they wasn't with me. You know, they just stayed at home and they were safe here. So when do you, when do you come home for good? You know, once they shut down the, the league? I came home uh, March 29th. Okay. March 29th, I got a flight. So then that was the other thing. There was this the worry of not being able to get through the border. Like they're shutting down borders. So when I found out the season was canceled, uh, like Saturday, I think I booked my flight. Saturday, Sunday, Saturday night to leave Monday morning. I had to catch the first flight. I called Delta and they told me they had 600 planes already parked and they were running out of flights leaving Japan. So I jumped on the first one. Yeah, I couldn't have even imagined, you know, what it would have been like to get stuck there and then to not be able to to go home. Um, but you know, I'm glad you you were able to get home to your family. So. In the meantime, like, what's what's life been like for you? Are you, you know, are you still working out, or have you gotten word from your team about when, um, you know, when you guys can go back? Or, you know, I know even now with the NBA, like, they're still looking at at the possibility of you know, restarting the season maybe in June or July or something. Has there any been any word from your team about when your season will resume or if it'll resume? They're supposed to have meetings discussing if they're going to postpone the season or not. But uh, if I had to take a guess, they won't, um, because Japan is like regular life. Like they, they're gone. Like, you know, we shut down in quarantine not in Japan. It's, excuse me, they shut down Tokyo for a weekend. That's it. Wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
So I think it's going to just pick back up. I think if anything, when we do start back up, if things are not completely cleared up, we'll do no fans. Like I said, they already did that once. And, you know, just a lot of TV games, that's all. Now, when does your season, like, typically run? We're not facing, a, you know, a, a pandemic. When does your season uh, usually start? First games are usually in October. But we usually report in, uh, sometime in August. Okay. Yeah. And then your season normally ends when? Like, if you, if you don't make the playoffs, when would your season normally end? Uh, April. Okay. I've never been in that situation. <laughs> so, uh, John, did y'all – you won your league. Was that last year or, or two years ago or – Two years in a row. Okay. Yeah, I won – Two, I won back-to-back championships, and I was I won back-to-back championships with the same team, and I with the team I'm on now. I was on my way to win my third. I was going three in a row, and then coronavirus happened. Now, you know, without discussing like dollars, um, the pay when you're playing like in you know like in this league in Japan, um, do you get like playoff bonuses or, or championship bonuses or anything like that? Oh yeah, of course. Part like that's why it's part of the reason you play. You know what I mean? It's like you get that, you get the bonus check, and do a lot of things with those. So okay. All right. Well, um, I got a couple more questions for you. So, in addition to being, you know, a dad, a husband, um, you know, professional basketball player, you've also, you know, gotten into some other things. Um, you're an author now. Uh, you've written two books. Um, my and I bought the most recent one, um, Nyland Nash Take Tokyo. And you got, um, or no, Nyland, I, I bought uh, Nyland Nash Take Paris, that's the one that my daughter loves. And then you got Nyland Nash Take um, Tokyo. Talk a little bit about how you um, got into writing and how you um, got into um, publishing uh, children's books. Uh, first, like writing, at first of all, everybody asked me, like, do you enjoy writing? Honestly, I don't, but it's always been something that comes easy to me when I'm telling my own story. You know, if I, if I can tell my own story, I can knock something out or one of my blogs or something like that. I can knock that out in less than 45 minutes. Okay. And uh, so with the books, I, I realized my kids had a very fortunate life. They didn't grow up the way I grew up. You know what I mean? I didn't, I was very leaving St. Clair. My kids have gone to school and Paris, Athens, Tokyo, Gazi, uh, Turkey, they've been all around the world. You know what I mean? And I realized like a lot of kids don't get to experience that. So I was like, it might, I might as well document it and put it into children's book form so other, to try to inspire other kids to see the world. And uh, on top of that, um, representation matters. You know what I mean? How many black kids do you see in children's books? So I had to, I wanted to create, you know, showing black kids traveling. You know, that's it. You know, you don't see it quite often. So I was like, this is real life. And if you know anybody follows me on social media, you really get to see them interacting abroad. You know, they get you get to see a whole other side of the world and see kids how they interact in different countries. And uh, like I said, I just started writing one day, man. Like I had time and just knocked it out. Yeah. I actually wrote four. I actually wrote four books. Okay. And I have two, two published so far. The other ones, I just, I'm just waiting. I just take my time. All I got to do is like pretty much hit upload and they up there. So for anyone that's looking to, to publish a book, you know, can you talk a little bit about that process, you know, how you found a publisher or, you know, what hurdles you may have faced when trying to, to get your book? Well, initially, I was going to go through a big publishing company. And I started reading the fine print. And I started to realize that once I go through a big publishing company, um, they own your rights. They own your book. You know, you talk about music. You hear people talk about owning your rights, owning your masters and things like that. Right. If I go through a big publishing company, yeah, they'll give me a check up front. But what about the back end? You know what I mean? So uh, you can do self-publishing through Amazon, which is what I did. Okay. Where Amazon publishes my book. They take a small percentage. Everything else comes back to me. Or I can order my book and sell it myself. You know what I mean? 
And then, you know, these some of these publishers come and say, oh, we can reach so-and-so and so-and-so. I'm like, I have a network behind me. You know what I mean? Right. I know a lot of people. You know, all it takes is a couple posts on Instagram and it reached a million people. You know what I mean? Or more. So I just decided I'll do it myself. And I'm not big on um, paying somebody for something that I could be myself. You know right. I mean, all you, like, if you can Google it, you can figure it out. So that's what I did. Now, how do your how do your kids feel about you know having books with their names on it and you know showing their you know cartoon drawings of of their pictures and you know, talking about their their lives living overseas? They love it, man. I never forget when I first showed them you know the the rough draft. They were super excited. They didn't even understand it. It was going to be a book. They thought it was just a picture. Oh wow! Then I showed them the rest of the pictures as they came in. And uh, they loved it. You know, they took it to school. As soon as, as soon as I got the first copy, they took it to school and showed their friends. Um, both of them had the actual copies of the books in their schools and teachers read them. Uh, so it, it was cool, man. They, they kind of think they're superstars. Um, they think everybody know them. But, you know, a lot of people do, but they, they, they go over the top sometimes, you know. Well, that's that's uh, that's great, man. Like I said, I, um, I bought the... Uh... Nyla Nash uh, take Paris and, and my daughter loves it um, and now she wants to write her own book so go um, for it man I'm telling you go for it yeah. it's, it's, it's a wide open lane man. there's nothing there's nothing that should stop her from doing it like, yeah. it's not that hard man like, now I think my next challenge is going to be that when the twins get older you know they're going to be like where's our book and I'm like I've already been thinking like you know, that's the one thing about being overseas, you get a lot of downtime. So I have time to think, but I've already been thinking about a book idea for long. I'm I'm sure once they're they're able to, you know, to kind of recognize themselves and old enough to read, you know, they're they're gonna love being able to see themselves uh, in a in a book as well. Mm-hmm. So one more question. So in addition to again, um, being a professional athlete and, and an author. You also have um, a nonprofit uh, organization called Strive to Excel. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what your nonprofit seeks to do? Um, so Strive to Excel actually started between myself and my family, my sisters and my cousin. We all grew up in the same house. Uh, there's eight of us in a two-bedroom house on Eddie Road. And uh, i never forget, like, when I was young, I told my cousin, like, man, we're going to buy a whole neighborhood one day. And, you know, that kind of started the whole Strive to Excel thing. Then he had, you remember you do the high school pictures and you put your little quote on the side? Yeah. He went to school of science and his uh, his quote said, Strive to Excel and never to equal. So we kind of st- took the Strive to Excel thing and we rolled with it. We turned it into a nonprofit organization where uh, we look to help disadvantaged communities. Um, we help kids find different paths to school. Uh, we provide scholarship funds. Uh, you know, put on basketball clinics. We try to get our hands on a lot of things. Um, I want to do uh, low income housing next. Okay. Uh, trying to get our hands on everything, man. Like, you know, we literally grew up in the hood and we all have college graduates. We all went on to play basketball, except for my cousin. But we all college graduates, and that says a lot to us from St. Clair. You know what I mean? Yeah. We, we're a household of college graduates. Like, who says that? You know what I mean? Like, everybody knows that all that squad and Shima and Saida, they all won state championships and played in college and played professionally. But the biggest thing is we all graduated from college and we all came from some from, from pretty tough circumstances. Yeah. And I remember, you know, some of those uh, some of those days after practices, you know, you, you lived not that far from me. So I remember giving you a ride. Actually, I had to pass your house once we get off the, uh, you know, uh, 90, that uh, that Eddie Road Bratnall exit. You know, I remember dropping you off, a, you know, a handful of times before going on to, to my house. So, you know, it's always good, man, to see you know where we came from and you know, seeing people be successful in 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 their endeavors. You know, after school. Um, that's my, that was my and that house you're talking about, that yellow house on Eddie Road. That's yeah. my first. That's my first project. I went back and bought it. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, man. That's, that's, that's where it all started. I took my, my, I took my son up there uh, last summer. And he was like, Dad, we got a new house? I was like, yeah, this is another house of ours. We own this now. I told him how I grew up here. You know, they don't understand. You know what I mean? They don't understand. We live in the suburbs now. 
But he, to him, it's the funnest thing in the world to go up there and see all the kids out on the street. But he don't understand what's going on. Right. Doors, you know what I mean? But uh, I try to give him that taste of Cleveland every summer. I take him up there. Like, look, this is where I grew up at. This is what it's like. Go play with your cousin. Right. Go come back in the house. Yeah. <laughs> you figure it out. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, that, but that's good, though. So he can, you know, see where you came from and, and see how you made it. And and then, you know, when you get back to your own house, you're like, all right, you know, now I can see what I have. And, you know, maybe sometimes people, you know, back where my dad grew up didn't have it like the way that I do. Um, and they can realize, you know, the, the blessing that's in front of them, you know, when they maybe take some things for granted, you know, they're able to see, um, you know, what, it, what other people you know, might live like or, you know, that's how I recharge my battery, man. That's how I recharge my battery every so often. I go up to Cleveland, I stay for like five days. Yeah. And just seeing the conditions that I come from, seeing the conditions that I know people are still in, right. I recharge my battery. Like that's how that's how I'm able to still be able to compete at a high level. Like I've been through it all. I've seen it all. There's nothing I haven't seen. Right. So like on the court, this is something I'm doing for fun. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I want to thank you, Wyatt, man. I, I appreciate you, you know, taking some time out of your evening um, to, to talk to me. Um, this concludes another episode. Oh, actually, before we conclude, if you want to plug, like, your social media, um, you know, your, uh, your, your website, oh, nonprofit, um, summer basketball camp, if we have summer basketball camps this year, yeah. anything that oh. you can plug, um, go ahead. So you got jawaiwilliams.com. Uh, that's my you know, you can find out what I'm doing as far as my profession goes. You can check out my blogs. You got uh, strive2excel.org. It's my nonprofit organization. Nyla and Nash, N-A-I-L-A-H, and Nash.com will be launched probably this week. Okay. Um, my social media, all my social media is worldwide, W-O-R-L-D-W-A-D. And uh, then you got Nyla, Nyla Nash also on social media. So there you go. Well, thanks again, man. I appreciate it. Um, you and your family stay safe, stay healthy during this time. Um, you know, we always connect on social media anyway, so I'm sure I'll be talking to you soon. Um, as soon as I'm done editing this, I'll send you the link so you can check it out. But, uh, thank you again, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, man. Take care of yourself. All right, you too. All right.